Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Dow managed to finish off this Friday with a loss of less than 500 points. The Dow Jones Industrial Average finished down just 496 spot 87 points. So I guess the headline can be we avoided a 500 point decline. At one point, the Dow was better than 550 points in the red. But, you know, when you close that close to your low of the day, you know, within 10 percentage points of the low, that is a very weak close. And the Dow finished the day week, the week week. It is a very weak month. In fact, the weakest indexes continue to be the Russell 2000. I've been talking about the weakness in the small caps. In fact, that index is now down better than 19% from its peak just, what, four months ago or something like that. So we're almost officially in bear market territory. We'll probably be there by Monday, uh, judging by the technicals. The other uh, index that is leading the way down are the Dow Jones Transports. This index now down better than 18% from its peak. And both the Transports and the Russell 2000 are at uh, the lowest levels of the year. I mean, they took out the lows from the earlier decline that happened at the beginning of the year. So the Dow and the NASDAQ have yet to take out those lows set earlier in the year. Uh, but I believe they will. In fact, they may even take them out before the end of the year. You know, Monday again is looking extremely weak. I've been talking about this all quarter uh, where I think there is a potential for a Black Monday type event. Now, obviously, we're running out of Black Mondays or Mondays rather in 2018. In fact, there's only three more left. Uh, which is Monday coming up. Then we've got the 24th, which is Christmas Eve, and the 31st, which is New Year's Eve. Both of those days fall on a Monday when there will probably be very, very light uh, trading going on. So potentially the markets could uh, 
you know, see a lot of selling if there's not people, you know, there to buy. I will be on Fox Business Countdown of the Closing Bell this Monday with Liz Clayman. So maybe if I get lucky, you know, we'll have a Black Monday on a day that I happen to be on television. And I will be there for the final hour of the day. And oftentimes, the biggest part of the sell-off on big down days happens at the very uh, last hour. So I'll be live on Fox Business uh, for that potential big drop. So make sure and, and tune in live to watch it. Don't wait for me to put it up on YouTube and watch it later. Uh, make sure and tune in and watch it live. But, you know, the uh, retail sectors, XRT index, that index now down just over 1% today. That is now down better than 20%. So we are now in a bear market in the retail sector. And not even the better than expected retail sales that came out this morning could cause that index to close in the black you know, they were looking for a gain of 0.1, which, you know, isn't a big deal. Uh, last month, we got a strong up 0.8, and we actually were up 0.2, and they revised last month's up 0.8 to up 1.1. But what was really strong about the number is when you strip out autos and gas, there was an increase of 0.5, and they revised the prior month from up 0.3 to up 0.7. So what Americans were saving on cheaper gas, they were obviously spending it someplace else, and we had a stronger-than-expected uh, number. That caused the uh, Atlanta Fed to increase its uh, estimate for Q4 GDP growth from 2.4, which had been the lowest estimate it had you know, all quarter, now all the way back up to 3%. Now, we'll see if this is a real number, if this is an aberration. Maybe we'll get a downward revision. Maybe this is some kind of consumer last hurrah. I'm really not sure because I believe the markets more than I believe uh, these retail sales numbers. And when you see these stocks getting absolutely decimated, I mean, there was that stock, Tailored Brands, which owns the men's warehouse. This thing was down 30%. I think it was yesterday in one day when they came out with their earnings and there was a you know rather substantial decline in the sale of suits, which again, if this is such a strong economy, if this is a booming economy and we're creating all these jobs, why don't people have to buy suits for their jobs? I mean, and if there's all these jobs and you're going on job interviews, you know, people getting out of college and they're going on job interviews. I mean, I remember when I went on job interviews, I had to have a suit. I mean, so I don't know, are people not wearing suits now when they go on job interviews or are they not even bothering to go on job interviews because they know there's no jobs there. But, you know, if there's all these new jobs, I mean, why aren't people buying new suits to go with their new jobs or any suits? You know, if you're working, you're wearing suits. Now, obviously, maybe it's because none of the jobs we're creating require suits. I mean, the last I went time I went to McDonald's, uh, they weren't there in a jacket and tie. You know, they have these uniforms. Uh, maybe that's what uh, the men's warehouse should stock is fast food uniforms so they could actually have a wardrobe uh, for the modern day American workforce. But again, this is just more anecdotal evidence uh, that this, uh, this economy is a fantasy, that this job creation is not taking place, that this is not a booming economy. And of course, there's a lot more evidence uh, than the weak sales going on at Men's Warehouse. But in any event, these better than expected numbers today were not enough uh, to revive the retailers. Also, the financials now officially slipping into bear market territory. The S&P 500 uh, financials, again, continue to be led lower. 
uh, by Goldman Sachs, down another 1.8%. I mean, we're getting close to now down 40%, I think, from its peak. Uh, not quite, but almost for Goldman Sachs. Remember, I on uh, in 2008, when I was on Fox News, uh, one of the women that was on there was saying that uh, Goldman Sachs was the Dolce Gabbana of the financials, and she was happy to be able to buy it on sale. Well, I think the sale on uh, <laughs> Dolce Gabbana of financials is going to get a lot better. But all the, the financials, not just the investment banks, uh, but the big banks, Bank of America made a new low today, but actually eked out a eight-cent gain. Uh, but it still made a new uh, 52-week low on the day, as did Wells Fargo, which also closed down better than 1%. Citigroup, new 52-week low, down 1.34%. Morgan Stanley, down 2.36%. That's a new 52-week low. Uh, the list goes on. So the financials getting killed, the retailers getting killed, yet everybody wants to pretend that this economy is booming. In fact, when I was listening to some of the coverage earlier this morning on CNBC, they were talking about the market being down. Of course, when I was listening, we weren't down 500 yet. We we're maybe only down two or 300. And basically their conclusion was nothing to worry about, that maybe the markets are just trying to scare out some people. We have to have a flush out, but then we're going to be going up and making new highs because the fundamentals of the economy are great. I mean, what are they talking about? How are the fundamentals of the economy great based on what measure? Just looking at the unemployment rate and saying, oh, we got low unemployment uh, or we have some high confidence. I mean, these are all lagging indicators. Meanwhile, the confidence is coming down and we had been moving up in unemployment claims, although this week we did get a big move down yesterday we got the uh, jobless claims numbers, and maybe it was skewed by uh, the, uh, the day that everybody was closed. Probably the government offices were closed for the Bush, uh, Bush funeral, so maybe there were only four days. And that's why we had a 27,000 uh, drop. We revised the prior month's claims number up from 231 to 233, but then the most recent claim dropped all the way back down to 206. And remember, I've been looking for a break above 240 to confirm my thought that the low is in when it comes to unemployment claims. So we'll see what happens next week. My, my gut is that this was an aberration and that we'll make up for that with a much bigger jump in uh, jobless claims next week. But there really is no evidence that we have a fundamentally strong economy. In fact, the evidence... Uh, which show the opposite. I mean, the economy is fundamentally weak. It's been propped up by artificially low interest rates. Interest rates are still artificially low, but they're not low enough, and the whole thing is imploding. In fact, more evidence of just how weak the U.S. economy is uh, was announced on Wednesday afternoon, and somehow I missed it when I did my podcast on Wednesday, so I'm going to talk about it now, uh, was the uh, state released by the government of their budget deficit for November. And again, this is the official deficit. This is not the actual amount of money that the government borrowed. This is just what they admitted that they had to borrow on the books, right? So the actual amount of borrowing is much greater uh, than what they actually officially admit to, even though what they admitted to is horrific. So the prior month, the budget deficit for the month was $100.5 billion. And the consensus was that the November budget deficit would be $165 billion. So that's still a 65% increase from the prior month. And there was a range of estimates from as low as $93 billion to as high as $204 billion. 
204 was the top anybody had. And we came out at 204 spot nine. So we actually came in above the highest estimate. So basically nobody went over. Everybody was under on how large the deficit was. In fact, the deficit was so big for the month of November that if you actually compare what the government collected in taxes to what it spent, it spent twice as much as it collected in taxes. I mean, imagine that. Talk about living beyond your means, spending twice your income. But if you really want to keep this thing in perspective, you have to look at the November 2018 deficit and compare that to the deficit a year earlier in the same month, right? November uh, 2017. So you take out all the seasonal effects of how money flows in and out, and you just compare November of this year to November of last year. Now, if the economy is really booming, right? We had this 4% uh, growth. I mean, this is supposedly the strongest year for economic growth of the Trump uh, presidency, right? So in a strong economy, what do you generally expect? Tax revenues to be going up as all the people who are getting jobs pay higher taxes and people have more income and so they pay more taxes. And then you expect spending to go down because a booming economy lifts people out of poverty. People who were unemployed get jobs. People who had bad jobs get better jobs. People get raises. So not as many people need unemployment or food stamps or all this kind of stuff, right? So you would expect that government spending to you know be lower uh, you know, and uh, and revenues to be higher. Well, the opposite happened. Government spending rose year over year by about 18.5%. So the government in November of 2018 spent 18% more than it did in November 2017. That is a huge increase in government spending. And it's not like we've passed some major new government programs. Uh, yeah, we've agreed to increase spending, but I mean, nothing huge. And look at that, 18% raise. On the other hand, revenues actually fell. The government actually collected 1% less in revenue, despite the fact that we have a larger population, right? More people supposedly entered the workforce. The government actually collected less revenue in November of 2018 than it did in November in, in 2017. I mean, and that's with the inflation that's out there. How can this be? Now, obviously, we have the tax cuts. But remember, everybody said the tax cuts were going to pay for themselves. Clearly, that wasn't the case. Now, of course, we don't know what the tax revenues would have been had they not cut taxes. I mean, you can maybe argue that the government would have collected even less revenue, but for these tax cuts. I guess that's a stretch to kind of you know, try to make that argument, but who knows? But the most important thing is that regardless of whether the tax cuts generated extra economic growth, it wasn't enough to cause more revenue to flow to the federal government. The government got less revenue not more. Now, if we have all these people working, where are their payroll taxes? Why isn't this, you know, why aren't those taxes flooding the government treasury? The fact that revenues are falling and expenditures are skyrocketing is evidence that the economy is either already in recession or is on the cusp of one. I mean, you can't ignore these facts. And the reality is the debt is running out of control Yet people still don't get that because even though we had the bad numbers that came out and even though the stock market continued to get pummeled again today, the dollar was up. 
The U.S. dollar index finished the day strong, the week strong. We're back above 97, 97 spot, 4-4. Now, part of that, again, is the distraction of what's going on on the other side of the pond with Brexit and maybe some of the problems now happening in France. And so we're, we're, we're benefiting from the fact that, you know, people think that we're the, the least dirty shirt in a hamper. Uh, and so they're putting us on but they don't realize that we're actually uh, the dirtiest shirt in that hamper. And again, the strength in the uh, the dollar uh, kept gold from going up. I mean, gold was down four or five bucks today. We still have not broken above 1250. In fact, we pulled back and now we're back below 1240 on the price of gold. I mean, not much below, but a little below. But again, gold prices are creeping higher. And at some point, they're going to explode higher. I just don't know when. Uh, when it comes to the cryptocurrencies, of course, they're going to be exploding in the opposite direction. Bitcoin once again made a new low today. The low so far, I'm recording this now uh, Friday afternoon, and so far the low that I see on bitstamp.net is 3,135. So we took out the old low, which was 3,200. Uh, that was kind of the lower end of the range. And as I said you know now we've broken down into a new range we'll see where the bottom of this range is because this decline uh just began today it's been pretty orderly as i'm speaking uh we're just below 3200 uh, uh i would imagine that we're going to crack below 3000 on this move down i mean that's a nice round number you think maybe there's uh, some stops below there they need to shake some people out probably going to stop falling again and maybe come into another range uh, maybe between just below 3,000 and maybe the, the the new high end of the range will be uh, 32, 3,300. We'll see. Uh, but I think we continue to ratchet down as more and more tax loss selling, I think, is going to be hitting uh, the cryptocurrency space between now and the end of the year. The hodlers, of course, uh, uh, holding on for dear life. I mean, they're not uh, giving up. I mean, they haven't capitulated. Uh, so I don't see uh, I don't see those guys giving up. Uh, uh, this year, but I think we continue to move down. But at some point, we're going to start moving down in a bigger way. Uh, maybe it's going to be, you know, from two, you know, some two thousand to one thousand might be a quicker move, or maybe from one thousand to five hundred, or we'll see. Uh, but the percentage moves obviously can get bigger and bigger as the price of Bitcoin falls lower and lower. Of course, as Bitcoin continues to move down, the altcoins continue to move down at an even faster pace. Uh, Bitcoin now at 55.2% of uh, the crypto space. And as I'm looking right now on coinmarketcap.com, we are just below $102 billion market cap. So we have less than 2% to drop before the market capitalization of the entire crypto space is back below 100 billion. Of course, you know, it's still going to be a lot of value for basically nothing. So we still have a long way to go. But at the peak, I think that number was around 800 billion, if not even a bit higher than that. So a lot of this market cap uh, being surrendering as, as people bail out on crypto. The hope, of course, is still alive. We are falling a slope of hope in this major bear market. But again, it's similar to the slope of hope uh, that the uh, the stock market is sliding. I mean, everybody wants to believe that nothing has changed, that everything is great. And when it comes to cryptos, just like the market, nothing has changed. 
It was always a bubble. There was never any fundamentals to support the market. There wasn't any fundamentals to support it when it was going up, and there's no fundamentals to support it now that it's going down. The difference is it was going up, and people were getting rich on paper buying it. Now it's collapsing, and people are going broke. But other than that, nothing's changed. Of course, one of the things that nobody seems to want to acknowledge, least of all on financial television, when they're talking about the markets, and now they're talking about the increased uh, possibility or probability of a recession in 2019 or 2020. I mean, that is certainly uh, a much uh, bigger risk than people thought a few months ago when people thought there was no risk, right? Everything was great when the markets were hitting new highs and Trump was out there tweeting about how great the economy was and giving all these speeches about how we had 4% growth. I mean, the last thing on anybody's mind was a recession uh, coming by 2020. But now that you have a lot of people speculating and worrying about the fact that we may in fact have one, I am not seeing any discussion at all about what that means for the probability or the possibility of a, a Trump re-election. And of course, now that the markets are tanking and people are starting to get worried, I mean, we'll see how Trump is able to uh, withstand all of the political controversies, the most recent one uh, being the revelations or allegations uh, about the extent to which he, took, he participated and had knowledge of the payoffs that were meant to cover up uh, his extramarital affairs and having that information not go public uh, during the campaign, especially in the aftermath of the Access Hollywood tape uh, where Trump was trying his best to, you know, hey, that's locker room talk and still present himself, uh, you know, on, on a higher moral, uh, uh, you know, platform. Certainly it would have been very negative to have tales of uh, extramarital affairs, uh, whether they're true or not, uh, coming out. And so he, uh, you know, is accused of having participated in efforts to cover them up. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously, there are many reasons that that Trump would want to cover up um, extramarital affairs. I mean, assuming his wife didn't know about those affairs, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that he would want to keep them quiet, even if he wasn't a presidential candidate. Uh, and clearly, maybe the only motivation, the only reason that those stories had any value was because he was running for president. Right, because obviously, if Trump wasn't a presidential candidate, there wouldn't be any money in coming out and, and and saying that you had an affair with Trump. I mean, probably most people assumed that Trump was having affairs anyway, uh, and so it wouldn't be a big deal if somebody came out and said they had an affair with Donald Trump. I mean, who would care? It only became relevant was because Donald Trump was a candidate for president, and as a presidential candidate, obviously, you know, ever since, uh, you know, Gary Hart in the monkey business. I mean, this has been a big deal in presidential campaigns. Now, I don't know if Donald Trump can can try to claim that, well, this was not related to the uh, the election, that I was not trying to influence the election. I just wanted to spare uh, my wife and my children uh, from having, uh, you know, to to deal with this or learn about this or whether the, the, the allegations are true or not. But I think it's going to be a tough call to say that he was not engaging uh, in, in in campaign expenditures, that whatever money was expended in order to cover up these um, these stories or buy up the stories and bury them, none of that is illegal. I mean, you're certainly allowed to pay people hush money. But in the context of a campaign, 
you have to disclose the payments. I mean, that's the problem, right? Because everything has to be disclosed. And if you make a contribution and you don't disclose it, that's a violation of campaign finance laws. So this is, you know, the president is now caught up in this again. And, you know, when the economy is booming and everybody thinks his political future is bright, then you have a lot of support for the president. But that support could go away if the president's popularity is diminishing as, uh, you know, the economy takes a turn for the worst. But what people are not really talking about is the prospects for a socialist president in 2021. I mean, that's what's going to happen because if the economy is in a recession, there is no chance that Trump is going to get reelected. I don't care. I mean, it's not going to get reelected in a recession. And even if Trump resigns or is impeached, you think Pence is going to get reelected if the Republicans are leading the economy in a recession? I mean, you can't campaign on four more years when you're in a recession and you can't campaign on change when you're the incumbent and you can't campaign on making America great again when you already claimed you delivered on that promise. And now America is a wreck again. Uh, so if we are in a recession, then Trump is a one termer for sure. Right. He is the uh, Republican Jimmy Carter. And what we're going to get is the Democrat Ronald Reagan, which, you know, is the opposite, right? It's like Star Trek, the parallel universe. You know, we're going to get the evil Ronald Reagan with a with a beard, right? It's going to be the socialist Ronald Reagan. That's what's coming, right? Because if the Democrats win, which they will, right? Because the libertarian candidate's not going to win. We're not going to have a third party that's going to win the White House. So if it's not going to be the Republican, then it's going to be the Democrat. And the Democrats are going to nominate a socialist. I mean, they went down with Hillary Clinton last time, which was an establishment uh, candidate. They're going to want the opposite of Hillary Clinton. They're going to want a Bernie Sanders type guy. If it's not Bernie himself, uh, it's going to be somebody else. It's a good thing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is so young, right? What is she, 26, 27? Otherwise, they might try to run her for president. And who knows? She just might win. I mean, if she was running against Donald Trump, in a recession, as bad as she is, she'd probably win the general election. So I guess we could thank God that she's you know, still constitutionally too young uh, to run for president. But somebody like that, some socialist, is going to win because they're going to make all sorts of promises that the voters are going to buy because the Republicans are going to be out of promises and the Democrats can always outpromise the the Republicans anyway. I mean that is, you know, been, you know, the, the biggest downfall when the Republicans try to act like Democrats that they 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 lose because they can never outpromise and outspend the Democrats. But you know, one of the most ridiculous uh claims that the socialists have made, or at least that I've seen, and they make all kinds of crazy claims because it's all pie-in-the-sky nonsense. But probably one of the most ridiculous ones was in an article that was published by Vox.com. Vox is the website, and they're this ultra-left-wing you know, socialist site, and everything they publish, it's very, very leans-left socialist. And so this socialist wrote this article, and the title of the article is Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, right? according to an anthropologist. An anthropologist. Now, first of all, anthropology is probably one of these Mickey Mouse majors that most, you know, a lot of people major in this. You know, a lot of athletes, probably frat boys, you know, people that don't want to study, you know, they take anthro, major in that. I mean, it's probably another reason why all this is a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some, you know, decent anthropologists. I mean, you know, you think of... Um, uh, 
Harrison Ford from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm not like saying that legitimate anthropology doesn't have a place in society, but this is a bunch of nonsense, uh, what this woman is claiming. And I'm sure there's a lot of nonsense being taught in anthro uh, uh, you know, courses in universities throughout the country. Uh, but this uh, socialist anthropologist is making this claim, this statement, as if it's a fact. Why women have better sex under socialism? It's not a question. It's not like, do women have better sex under socialism? It's a statement as if it's a fact. It's trying to explain why women have better sex under socialism. Like, we know they have better sex, so I'm going to try to explain why it is that women have better sex under socialism than under capitalism. Because apparently, if sex is better under socialism, well, then everything else must be better. And so this is another reason to have socialism because it's going to improve your sex life. Well, first of all, this is a bunch of utter nonsense. Oh, and before I even get into this, I want to thank my son, Spencer, for turning me on to this article. He sent it to me, uh, and I, I took a look at it. You know, my son is 16 years old, and he's actually really into economics now, and I got him started in the right direction. He read some of my books. Yeah, you know, he read my dad's stuff, and he started reading a lot of libertarian stuff. So he's, you know, I think he actually knows a hell of a lot more now at 16 than I knew when I was 16. In fact, I started following him on Twitter, and he puts out some good stuff now too. And I've gotten a couple of retweets. So you know, you might want to follow him yourself. Spencer Schiff. His uh, his uh, his handle is Spencer five seven three six two five. Not sure how he came up with that. But you'll also see that I'm following him. So you might want to follow him because sometimes he, he comes up with stuff before I do. He's, you know, even during school, you know, he's got his phone on. He's constantly looking at the markets and looking at the economic data and looking at charts. So he's really into this stuff. But he sent me this article. So I just wanted to uh, give a shout out uh, uh, to Spencer. But the whole premise of this article, I mean, complete nonsense. And the basis, if you read the article, and just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up, right? Because you would think that, you know, nobody could be so stupid. Well, yeah, socialists are this stupid, and the article will prove it. But the writer cites a study that was supposedly conducted in Germany, where uh, they compared the responses from the women living in West Germany, which was free market, to the women living in East Germany, which was socialist. And apparently, based on this study, the East German women had a better sex life. They were more sexually satisfied in East Germany than they were in West Germany. Now, first of all, apparently it was a self-reported survey where they just asked questions. And, you know, so, I mean, it's obviously not a scientific survey, so you can throw the whole thing out anyway. But apparently it's enough for this woman to conclude, aha, this proves it. Right, that women living under socialism have uh, better sex, and 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 once she believed that conclusion, now since she's a socialist and thinks socialism is so great, most of her article is trying to explain why this is true. Like, what is it about socialism that leads women to have much better sex? And then she goes and and, and mentions some of the things, which I'll get to in a minute, because of course they're all ridiculous. But think about this for a minute. I mean, the women in Eastern Germany were having all this great sex, why did they have a wall to keep them in, right? I mean, there was a huge wall, the Berlin Wall, right? And it wasn't the West Germans that built the Berlin Wall, and they didn't build it, you know, to keep, you know, the East Germans out. I mean, they were, they were happy to let the East Germans come in. It was East Germany that built that wall 
And it wasn't because they didn't want the West Germans coming into East Germany. No, they built the wall to keep their own people inside, including the women. Now, if the women were having such great sex, why would they want to leave? You'd think they'd be content. In fact, if the news of all this great sex that all these Eastern German girls were having, if it made it over the wall, you would think that a lot of the women would want to leave West Germany, where they were having bad sex, and go to East Germany, where they could have some good sex. But the fact that that's not how it went is, is, is some pretty good evidence that uh, the sex wasn't all that great over there on the other side of the wall. But I could certainly believe that if there was a survey done in East Germany about sex, that East German women may in fact have been content with their sex and relatively satisfied because you have to put everything in perspective. Everything in East Germany was horrible. So maybe sex was the only thing these women had to look forward to because the rest of their life was awful. I mean, they were waiting in line five hours to buy a loaf of bread, right? So maybe if they, at the end of the day, they had some sex, maybe relative to that, sex was pretty good. And remember, if you live under socialism, right, you are used to disappointment, right? You are, everything disappoints you. So maybe sex wasn't so bad, even if it wasn't great, you know, compared to everything else, you know, maybe women in East Germany were less disappointed in sex than they were in everything else that they did. And so based on that scale, yeah, sex was okay. They were satisfied. But the women in East Germany, they had a lot of great things going on. They had much higher expectations. Your expectations in East Germany are about as low as they could possibly be. I mean, so it's probably pretty easy for an East German guy to satisfy an East German girl when she's living under socialism. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's the only bright spot in her day, even if it's lousy sex, it's better than what she's got, you know, going on outside of sex. Whereas the, the, the women in, in West Germany, they had a lot going on. They had good lives. A lot of things were happening. They had high expectations for their sex partners. So maybe the bar was a lot higher uh, for the West German girls for sexual satisfaction. It's not that the sex was so much better in East Germany. It's just that everything else was so much worse that sex seemed better by comparison. Now, that makes sense to me if you're trying to figure out how to justify the question. I mean, maybe maybe the women were confused. Maybe they, 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 they thought they were being asked, you know, if they were getting screwed rather than if they were having sex because, of course, you know, everybody in the socialist country is getting screwed. I mean, that's what's happening, you know. So they might have misunderstood the question and maybe that's why they were, you know, they, they, they answered the way they did. But if you look at what this woman, this socialist did. She came up with all these reasons because, you know, the socialists love uh, all of the anti-discrimination laws and they love uh, minimum wage or, uh, you know, all these programs. And so if you read her article, she was crediting all this, right? Because the government was taking care of women and because women didn't have to worry about as much stuff as they would have to worry about under capitalism because, you know, under capitalism, they get discriminated against, they get underpaid, you know, they don't have, they'd have to worry about who's going to take care of their kids because, you know, they were so content living under communism, right? Because everything was so great because women didn't have a care in the world living in uh, East Germany, right? Because all their needs were taken care of. They had better sex, right? Because they, they weren't so worried, you know, like the women in West Germany, right? Were so worried because they were so exploited and they were, they were facing so much discrimination in a male dominated world that they couldn't enjoy sex. But because you had all these carefree women 
living under socialism in East Germany where all their needs were taken care of by the government and they had nothing to worry about. They were relaxed enough to enjoy sex. I mean, what a bunch of nonsense. These women were miserable, miserable living in East Germany. I mean, why do you think they celebrated when they tore the wall down? You know, you think they'd be all disappointed. Oh, damn it. There goes all this great sex. Right. You know, so but this is how these socialists think. They try to come up with any kind of bullshit reason to justify something that clearly doesn't work, that has clearly failed every time it's been tried. Look, when they unified East and West Germany, they didn't adopt the the policies of East Germany. Right. West Germany didn't become socialists. It was the East Germans that gave up socialism to join the capitalist West. Why was that? Because the standard of living was higher in West Germany than it was in East Germany. And I'm sure the sex was better too. In fact, I'm sure the women are having much better sex now than they were having 30, 40 years ago uh, under communism. But the socialists will never admit that. No matter how many times it fails, they'll never admit that it doesn't work because it's, it's a very politically popular ideology with the masses. And the fact that they can put out this nonsense, that they can write this trash and put it off as journalism, this is showing you what is going to happen with the elections that are coming up in 2020. The Democrats are going to have all sorts of bullshit arguments why everything's going to be better if we just get let the government do it. You know, there was a, a article that I was reading about the state of California wanting to impose a tax on sending text messages. Now, why do they want to do this? Well, because a lot of people in California that have cell phones are texting instead of talking. And there is a tax on talking, right? So whenever you're on your cell phone and you're talking and you're running up minutes talking, um, you are incurring some kind of uh, tax. And the government uses the money supposedly to subsidize poorer people so that they can afford to have cell phones. Well, since more people are texting instead of talking, they're not getting the tax revenue. So they need more tax revenue. So rather than raising the tax on talking, they want to initiate a new tax on texting. right? And I thought the most interesting thing about the article that I read about this was they went over the cost to the government, which is taxpayers of California, to providing the subsidies so that the poorer people can afford cell phones, right? And of course, the cell phones, the prices of cell phones have been going down. I mean, it's cheaper to have a cell phone now than it was in the past. Yet, according to this article, the cost of the subsidy has gone up by 46% in the last six years. That means that the cost of subsidizing or provided a subsidy to poor people who use cell phones has increased by 7% per year in the state of California. I mean, what is that? I mean, triple, more than triple the official rate of inflation. But what's even crazier is that using cell phones is getting cheaper. Yet when the government has to pay people for their cell phones, it's getting more expensive to the tune of 7% a year. So whenever you get the government involved in anything, even something where the free market is reducing the costs, the government will find a way to make the costs go up. And of course, rather than trying to say, wait a minute, why are we increasing at 7% a year? Why is this subsidy so expensive? Instead of trying to figure out where the fraud is, where the abuse is, how they can turn this around, 
the easiest thing for California to do is say, oh, we need more taxes. Not that we have a spending problem, that we're spending too much. We're spending more when we should be spending less, but let's go out and raise taxes. And of course, again, this is more anecdotal evidence that the economy sucks. See, if the economy was getting better, fewer people would need these subsidies. More people could afford to buy their own cell phones. They wouldn't need a taxpayer subsidy. The fact that more and more people need subsidies to use a cell phone is just, again, more evidence that the economy is lousy despite all these great numbers. But getting back to the point I was making, you know, the socialists are going to promise everything, maybe even including better sex, but they're going to make all sorts of promises that they're never going to be able to deliver on but that are going to sound appealing to the voters. It's all going to be free stuff, right? I mean, and if it's not better sex, it's going to be free education, free health care, guaranteed jobs, this whole laundry list, this you know shopping list, this uh, uh, wish list of socialists. All this stuff's going to come true in, in 2000 and 2021. And nobody is talking about what this means. What this means for the economy, what this means for the budget deficits, what this means for the stock markets. Right. I mean, if the stock markets are happy because we have less regulation and lower taxes, do you think that's going to continue under a socialist Congress and a socialist president? They're going to jack taxes up as high as they can. We're going to be the new France. I mean, we're going to out France, France. I mean, if you think the, the Scandinavian countries are socialists, wait till you see what happens in the United States. I mean, the last defense that we're going to have is going to be the Supreme Court. I mean, that's going to be it. It's going to be, is the Supreme Court going to step up to the plate and actually strike down some of the unconstitutional nonsense that is going to make it through a socialist Congress and is going to be signed into law by a socialist president? Because anything that is repugnant to the Constitution is supposed to be null and void. The problem is nothing is null and void until the Supreme Court declares it so. And so far, they have been reluctant to strike down unconstitutional laws that have been passed by Congress and signed by presidents for decades. The question is, when we really go to the extremes, will they step up to the plate and finally, finally do something on behalf of the American public and exercise their constitutional authority as a check against an unconstitutional power grab by both the legislative and executive branches of government? Oh, 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 oh,